Welcome to the Strangeology Podcast, your place to explore the world of weird. Coming up on today's episode is the biggest UFO story in the world, the Roswell incident. I'm your host, Jeff Foran. It's good to be back. And if this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. And also, sorry if I sound super nasally today. I'm getting over a cold I had over uh, the past weekend, and I'm recording this a little bit late because this is such a big episode, and I had to make sure I uh, did all the research to get things right. Um, So for veteran listeners of the show, you're probably like, what show am I listening to? Well, I decided that it was a good time to get a brand new intro song for the podcast. Uh, the old one I wrote myself when I first started this whole thing, and it was starting to feel a little long. Uh, so I put myself out there and I hired someone who's like a professional uh, composer of music and all that uh, to write a track for me. And I think it turned out great. Uh, so I hope you dig it. Uh, this is the the intro song I'm going to be using moving forward. So don't worry, you're still listening to the same old Strangeology podcast. We're just kind of trying to slowly level things up here a bit. And sticking with the bi-weekly schedule has been a little tricky lately since I've had some other projects going on. Uh, or getting sick, of course, but I hope you enjoyed the last episode that I did um, having Easton Hawk back on the show and doing an episode takeover to talk about the Joplin Butterfly people. I had a lot of fun and he'll definitely be back probably in a few months, maybe later in the in the festival season um, with another topic. Uh, we've been kind of chatting in the background about that. So I'm kind of pumped. Uh, And I'm lining up a number of awesome guests to have on the show in the coming weeks over summer uh, that I've been wanting to have on the show forever and a couple of uh, bigger name people. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be really cool. And before we get started, if you're looking for more Strangeology content, Make sure to give me a follow over on all of my socials. Uh, Instagram is still my my main base of operations, uh, but you can also find me on YouTube, TikTok, etc. You know the drill. Uh, and you can also sign up for my newsletter on my website, which I occasionally send out updates and coupon codes for my shop. Uh, I'm terrible at... Uh, sending things out with any kind of regularity. So don't worry, you won't get too many emails. Um, but it's it's definitely handy to to have, uh, especially around like the holidays and stuff, if you're looking to pick up some, some cryptid gear. And before we get started here, uh, I have a couple of upcoming and confirmed events. I'll be at and vending my wares this summer and fall. Uh, the first of course, is Cryptid Bash 2, which is happening in Morgantown, West Virginia on August 6th. You'll be able to find me by looking for the overwhelmingly green and black themed table. Uh, And I will have uh, some new shirts that I didn't have last year. Uh, I'm still waiting on my my film uh, printer so I can make some shirts in-house. I recently just acquired a, uh, a big workbench surface where I'll be able to 
set that all up and kind of have my production line to go on to just do the DIY route that I like to do. My next event after that, and this is the first time I'm announcing it, is going to be the Sasquatch Calling Fest, which is happening on September 24th in Whitehall, New York, uh, which is awesome because it's only a couple hours away from me instead of uh, 10 to 15 hours. <laughs> but that'll be a lot of fun. I, I was hoping I was going to do that one last year, but the, the logistics just did not work out for it. Uh, but I just picked up a, a canopy tent and a couple extra tables, so I'll be able to have a really cool display since it's outside in a park along a river. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. And of course, again, this year I will be at Cryptid Con in Lexington, Kentucky on November 19th and 20th. And that's going to be a blast uh, like it was last year. Um, so yeah, definitely mark, mark those dates on your calendar if you like going to Cryptid or Fortean-themed festivals. Hopefully next year or the year after, I'll be able to, to pick up a couple more uh, gigs, if you will, on the way. I would love to, uh, to get out there more, um, but definitely a lot of stuff happening in the horizon. Uh, so, you know, we'll see, we'll see how, how it all plays out. <laughs> and the other weekend uh, was the Withfield UFO Fest, which I heard had an amazing turnout. So if there's one that I do next year, I definitely... Definitely want to get on that one, um, but I think I'm going to have to invest or start a, a GoFundMe or something for a Strangeology mobile, uh, like the mystery machine van or something like that, because my car can barely fit all of my my vending setup and all my merch uh, and also fit me too. <laughs> so um, yeah, that'll be fun trying to navigate. But anyway, today's episode is again on the Roswell incident. Uh, since we're coming up on the 75th anniversary, I figured this would be a really good time to dig deep and look into this story. So let's get into it. All right, so it's the granddaddy of them all the event that catapulted the world into the modern-day UFO phenomena, the Roswell Incident. So when researching this, I referenced uh, several different sources, um, just so you all out there know what I was uh, looking at while, while researching and writing this episode. I picked up copies of The UFO Crash at Roswell by Kevin D. Randall and Donald R. Schmidt, uh, I also have the Big Book of UFO Facts by Stephen Spines and Bill Burns. Also, the Day After Roswell by Philip Corso and Bill Burns again. And Roswell, The Ultimate Cold Case by Thomas J. Carey and Donald R. Schmidt again. And Crash at Corona by Stanton Friedman and Don Berliner. So you can see there's no shortage of material on this subject. And there's been so many researchers over the years, so many stories and it's, I'm going to try to make sense of it all. And hopefully we can, we can get a, a nice, uh, cohesive timeline of what happened when and who's who in, in the whole story of Roswell. So wish me luck. <laughs> now, 
there's, yeah, there's so much detail to this story with eyewitness testimony, all of the things that happened the day of the crash, after the crash. So this is going to be a long episode. So strap in. And if you haven't picked up a, a beverage or a snack, definitely pause the episode, go get something and come on back and join me for this absolutely wild ride. So Roswell is kind of the jumping off point for a lot of different stories. And, you know, it wasn't the first incident involving a UFO in history or even the first crash. There was the Aurora, Texas crash that allegedly happened along with mystery airships that people were seeing in the late 1800s. We've got reports of strange unidentified craft during World War II, like Foo Fighters, Ghost Rockets, uh, the Battle of L.A., and even further back in history, there's strange accounts of objects in the sky. Uh, you think back to uh, like Alexander the Great when they were invading um, Persia and India. There were stories of them seeing like flying shields in the sky. It was millennia before we were even able to achieve flight. So it's interesting that, you know, there's some kind of story in all these different cultures throughout time that that talk about this kind of stuff. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of it can be explained away, but let's look at what was happening in the world when the Roswell incident happened. So it's 1947 in America. We're two years post-World War II. Of course, Germany and Japan were defeated. Uh, the atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And by 1947 a new threat in the Soviet Union started looming as they were developing their own atomic weapons program and closing off from the West and putting up the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe. And shortly before the Roswell crash, a man named Kenneth Arnold filled up headlines in radio broadcasts after he reported seeing several objects while he was flying near Mount Rainier en route to Yakima in Washington State on June 24, 1947. He originally described nine objects that appeared to fly kind of like geese, like they were in formation, and that they also moved like a saucer does if you skip it on water, which is, of course, where the term flying saucer originated. But I want to note that what Kenneth Arnold actually witnessed didn't look like a literal saucer or plate. Uh, they were actually more delta-shaped, resembling something more like a, a closer to a crescent moon that had this concave protrusion on the back. And they were silvery and reflective and were maneuvering like effortlessly between mountain peaks. And he first thought they might have been some new type of secret experimental military aircraft, but then he realized that they were flying at an incredibly fast speed. He clocked the time that it took for them to go from Mount Rainier to Mount Adams, which both peaks were around 45 miles or 75 kilometers apart. And he used his observations later uh, to determine the measurements of how fast these 
objects were traveling and how big they were. So he figured out that they were probably between 13 and 15 meters long or 40 to 50 feet, and they were traveling well over a thousand miles per hour. Now, some reports say that 1,200 miles per hour is how fast they were going. Other researchers who know way more than me have claimed they were going as fast as 1,700 miles per hour, which is, of course, more than twice the speed of sound, which I think is like 767 miles per hour, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, And at that time, jet engine technology was still in its infancy. The first manned supersonic flight actually took place uh, after this event uh, in October of 1947 with the X-1, which wound up hitting Mach 1, uh, which is the speed of sound. And it's still not as fast as the objects that Kenneth Arnold witnessed. And I'm guessing the X-1 also didn't skip like a saucer on water or appeared to, uh, or could bob and weave and snake through mountain peaks with ease. Um, I'm guessing it was probably the test pilot was keeping it mostly straight and not trying to bank the, uh, the X one. Um, so who knows exactly, but, uh, you know, after this came to light, the media encouraged people to report their flying saucer sightings. And of course, Reports of these objects started popping up everywhere by the hundreds between mid-June and early July of 1947. Now, let's talk about Roswell itself for a second. Prior to any incident involving aliens or UFOs, historically, um, Roswell is considered to be the cradle of space exploration in America, which is interesting. And it was the place where Robert Goddard first started experimenting with rocket technology. So there's this history and connection with outer space here already, which is, that's kind of a a cool little uh, historical factoid. Uh, And more recently, it was also, or is also the place where um, the daredevil Felix Baumgartner uh, broke records for the highest skydive ever. And he... (laughs) He broke the sound barrier, apparently, after jumping out of a, a balloon that had gone about 24 miles or 39 kilometers up into the stratosphere. Uh, and this this one isn't um, Roswell. It's actually like 250 miles west near uh, Truth or Consequences. But the state of uh, New Mexico also built this spaceport called Spaceport America, which is connected with um, the billionaire Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic. And that place opened up in 2011. But I think it just does suborbital flights uh, to, you know, people who can afford a ticket for that kind of thing. (laughs) Anyway, let's uh, let's get into the timeline of events for the Roswell incident. And There's a lot of names I'm going to be slinging around, so uh, hopefully you can all keep track. There's there's some major players in here, which I'm going to focus on, and a lot of other uh, witnesses and stuff that I'll mention, but probably really only scratching the surface of everything that's out there. On the evening of July 2nd, 1947, around 11 p.m., Several people in or near Roswell, New Mexico, claimed to witness a disc-shaped object in the sky, moving fast in a northwesterly direction. 
There was a thunderstorm that night around Corona, New Mexico with heavy rains and a rancher in this small town, some 75 miles outside of Roswell, remembered hearing an explosion in the middle of the night that was distinct from a thunderclap. That rancher in question was the supervisor of the J.B. Foster Ranch in Corona named William Brazel, but everyone refers to him as Mac Brazel. The morning after the storm on July 3rd, Mac had gone out to move the ranch's sheep into a new pasture. Now, he brought along his neighbor's son, Timothy D. Proctor, to help out. As they rode through the ranch, they came upon something really unusual, this debris field full of metallic-looking material in all shapes and sizes that kind of resembled something like tinfoil. And this debris was strewn over two hills, like something in the air had just exploded. There was so much of it, and it was packed tightly together. And the, like, the field was like so dense with this stuff that Brazel's sheep refused to cross the area. Mac wound up picking up some of the debris, and he found it to be incredibly light. And even though this stuff came from something that busted into a million pieces, the individual chunks of it were incredibly durable. He tried bending some of the pieces, uh, but they apparently wouldn't bend. And then he pulled out a knife and tried cutting them, but his blade had no effect. He even tried pulling out some matches to burn the debris and they were entirely resistant to fire. Like, they wouldn't even leave scorch marks, apparently. So, ultimately, this debris was kind of more like an annoyance to him. It was cluttering his field where his sheep were supposed to be grazing. So, Mac and, and D. Proctor decide to gather a bunch of it up and kind of, like, push it into some underbrush to get it out of the way. Brazel kept a couple of pieces of the debris with him and wound up bringing it over to the Proctor's house and spoke with D. Proctor's parents, Floyd and Loretta, about the debris. And he showed them some of these small fragments and demonstrated their durability, again, with matches, knives, trying to just break this stuff up and it just wouldn't give. They had no clue what it could be. And he offered to show them field on his ranch where he found this stuff, but they had too much going on and couldn't afford the gas to make the trip, uh, which was about 10 miles away from their home. Now, over the 4th of July weekend, he wound up showing his son Bill some of the debris, and later on, on the 4th, Mac goes into Wade's bar in Corona, where he brought the debris with him to show off, and he told all the locals of this apparent crash site on the ranch where he worked. And somebody suggested that he should try to claim a reward because it could be one of these flying saucers that people keep reporting after the, uh, the Kenneth Arnold incident. Now, the Foster Ranch didn't have a phone or radio. It didn't have any way to communicate with the outside world. So on July 5th, Brazel is in Corona, and he starts seeing all of these headlines and reports of flying saucers and disc-shaped craft, along with stories of them being spotted around Roswell and Corona. And there was even talk about rewards available for anyone who could recover one, uh, 
how would you record, recover a, a flying saucer? I don't know. Uh, so he made the connection after seeing all this news and getting suggestions that what if this debris that he found on his ranch might have been from one of these things? So he goes back to the location on the ranch where all of this debris was and uh, digs a bunch of it out from where he, he had stashed it. The following day, on July 6th, Brazel decides it's time to travel to Roswell, which is like the nearest big town, to speak with the authorities about the wreckage on his ranch and what to do about it. He met with Chavez County Sheriff George Wilcox of Roswell, New Mexico, and tells him about the debris field on his ranch outside of Corona, and he presents a few pieces of this mysterious debris. Due to how serious this sounded, Sheriff Wilcox felt obligated to, in turn, report this find to the Roswell Army Airfield. Now, at the time, the Roswell Army Airfield was home to the 509th Bomb Group, the only atomic-armed air squadron in the world at that point in time. So at this point, word's getting out and things are starting to come to a, a rolling boil with this story, uh, but this isn't even where things get crazy, so definitely uh, keep on listening. Uh, so word got out about Mac Brazel's story and Frank Joyce, who was a reporter for the local radio station KGFL, wound up getting in touch to interview Brazel and then reported this story as well to uh, the Roswell Army Airfield. Now, Joyce's boss, Walt Whitmore Sr., picked up Brazel uh, at some point during the day and brought him to his home in Roswell to interview Mac further. And this interview was recorded, but apparently the contents of that recording were never made public due to the radio station and, and Walt Whitmore Sr. receiving threats from the military not to release it. Um, however, what was said during his private interview versus what uh, Mac Brassel says publicly a few days later were significantly different. So Brassel proceeded to bring in samples of the debris to the Roswell Army Airfield and showed them to the base commander, Colonel William Blanchard. Realizing that this needed more investigation, Blanchard recruited his two top intelligence officers, Major Jesse Marcel of the 509th, who had top secret clearance, and Captain Sheridan Cavett from the CIC, or the Counterintelligence Corps. According to several researchers, these men, and particularly Jesse Marcel, were among the best, if not the best, intelligence officers in the U.S. military at the time. And this happened on July 6th, so it was a holiday weekend, and normally in an event involving some kind of potential crash, Blanchard would have more likely just sent a couple of enlisted personnel out to a site to investigate. So the fact that he is sending out kind of like the top brass intelligence officers that he has available to him on a holiday weekend, I would think is kind of significant. And there's another aspect to Captain Cavett. Um, he specialized in intelligence regarding foreign adversaries and designs, so it would seem that Colonel Blanchard may have suspected whatever the debris that 
Mac brought in might not be American. And during this time, the Cold War was just beginning. There was a lot of paranoia around Soviet communist infiltration into America, as well as tensions between Eastern and Western Europe, along with a fear that America wasn't going to be the only kid on the block with atomic weapons at their disposal. This was a time of great uncertainty, so it makes sense that the base commander of the only nuclear atomic armed uh, squadron is sending out the best men for the job to check this thing out. And I'm sure there was some suspicion of this being potentially something from the Soviet Union, but what happened next is what many researchers consider the flashpoint that started one of the biggest cover-ups in history and also marked the beginning of the modern UFO era. The next step that Colonel Blanchard took was to call in to the Carswell Army Airfield in Fort Worth, Texas, to speak with his superior officer, Brigadier General Roger Ramey, as it turns out. Uh, Ramey was on vacation for the holiday weekend, and he couldn't be reached uh, at the time. However, his chief of staff, Colonel Thomas DuBose, took the information down from Blanchard and relayed it directly to the Pentagon. So higher-ups in command were aware of this incident, and uh, allegedly it even went up to President Truman. So let's talk about the initial investigation. So Marcel and Cavett arrived the evening of July 6th to Foster Ranch, which was, I think it was about a four-hour drive to get out to Corona. Uh, but they weren't able to do much since they arrived so late in the day. The sun was setting. So they they wound up just testing some of the debris that Mac Brazel had on hand for radiation, uh, but they didn't find any signs of it with their equipment. I assume they had something like Geiger counters, uh, but none of, none of the uh, the materials that I uh, I looked through specified what exactly they were using to, to detect radiation. Uh, but the following morning on July 7th, uh, Brazel took Marcel and Cavett to the debris field on his ranch and they began to investigate. So Marcel noted that the debris field was around 200 feet wide, and it stretched out for three quarters of a mile, uh, which after examining the wreckage, Marcel believed that it was bizarre and significant. There was foil-like material everywhere, along with these strange little I-beam type chunks of metal, as well as uh, some kind of super tough parchment-like paper, there was also stuff that looked like balsa wood uh, mixed in with the wreckage. They also tested the whole area for radiation, but again, they, they didn't find any sign of it. Interestingly, uh, despite their expertise, Marcel and Cavett didn't recognize any of the debris. Marcel picked up a three-foot square piece of this dull gray material and said it was as light as a feather and as thin as the foil that you find that's in a pack of cigarettes. And he apparently was unable to bend it or flex it. And sometimes description of this stuff kind of makes me think of material like mylar, which was one of the trade names for this polyester type film. You're probably familiar with mylar balloons and uh, the the mylar shell casings that go on little like one to two inch buttons and stuff like that. 
Um, I learned that uh, in my research that this material is generically called BOPET or biaxially oriented polyethylene terephthalate. Uh, try saying that one five times fast. <laughs> uh, and apparently this stuff wasn't invented until the mid 1950s by Kodak. So if it was tinfoil, then that's a more reasonable explanation as tinfoil had been around since the late 1800s, but tinfoil is very much uh, bendable and pliable. You can rip it easily. So, you know, if if he picked up something that wasn't bending or ripping, I'm going to say it was probably something else. I don't know. Uh, now, I should note, again, that Marcel was in the 509th bomb group because he was familiar with pretty much every foreign and domestic aircraft or rocket at the time. So it's a little weird to me that he wouldn't recognize this material if it was uh, of earthly origin or it was American made. Um, you know, maybe he didn't drink enough coffee that day. <laughs> Who knows? But later on, Marcel would describe some of the debris as having a kind of memory to it as well, which is a pretty wild concept, especially for that time. The chunks of metal that he he could fold up or bend would return to the shape that he found it in, which definitely doesn't sound like a technology that was around in the 1940s. It wasn't until 1959 that Dr. William J. Bueller discovered that nitinol, a nickel and titanium alloy, used in the tip of warheads had an interesting reaction when exposed to high temperatures. And the way this material, this alloy works is that it's trained to take a certain shape or form. And if you bend it out of place, you can use heat to restore it to its original trained form. And there's also a way where you can train it to be a little bit flexible, but it always retains its original shape. It's a really cool um, technology. So if you get a chance, definitely look some videos up on YouTube. Uh, that's <laughs> what I did, and I checked some of this stuff out, and it's definitely really interesting. And this technology uh, went on to be used in medical applications like stents for blood vessels, flexible eyeglass frames, or in fighter aircraft. And you guessed it, this stuff is called memory metal or shape memory alloy. And this kind of material is also used in spacecraft. So that's interesting considering the topic at hand. So afterwards, Marcel and Cavett gathered up some of the debris and left the ranch. Marcel returned to his home and kept some of the debris overnight. And that's when he showed his then 11-year-old son, Jesse Jr., one of the objects he collected that was still in the trunk of his car. It was one of those I-beams, a metallic two-foot-long piece of metal that Jesse Jr. noticed appeared, it appeared that it had some kind of like hieroglyphic writings on it. And in an interview later in life, Jesse Marcel Jr. said this about the material that his father brought home that night before everything changed. He said, 
The most unusual part of this whole thing is what was on this I-beam on the inner surface. As you look at it head-on, there appeared to be a type of writing in the main frame itself. This writing was definitely a purplish-violet hue. It did have an embossed appearance. As I can recall, you can rub your finger on it and it had texture. I don't recall seeing any lines or letters of any kind, but it was more like geometric shapes. So that's a pretty stunning statement, if true. Definitely uh, makes it seem otherworldly, for sure. So the following day, uh, it's now July 8th, the entire area around the debris field was cordoned off by another CIC officer named Louis S. Rickett, who began placing MPs, or military police, all around the crash site. Some think this was because a second crash site was allegedly just discovered around 40 miles from Foster Ranch, which resulted in the military closing off roads in and around the whole area to conduct a retrieval operation, and they even barred the press from entering the area. Now, I'll go into more detail on the second crash site a little later, uh, because that one is also pretty significant to the story. Now, after this, Mac Brazel was approached by the military, and he wound up getting brought into the Roswell Army Airfield, where he was kept for a few days. And whether or not it was against his will is a little bit questionable. Meanwhile, Marcel and Cavett returned to uh, the airbase to show Colonel Blanchard, who then got a hold of General Ramey finally to report on their findings. Uh, and this day, July 8th, was also the morning of the infamous press release uh, at the Roswell Daily Record newspaper with the front page headline that said RAAF captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. This was actually drafted up by the Roswell Army Airfield's public information officer, Lieutenant Walter Hout, who he released it under the orders of Colonel Blanchard. Now, in his book, UFO Crash at Roswell by Kevin D. Randall and Donald R. Schmidt, it was said that Blanchard felt connected with his local community in Roswell. I guess being in charge of the world's only atomic strike force, uh, you know, wanted the public to know if anything weird was ever going on in the area or if there was some kind of threat. And because of his position as base commander, I would think he, he wouldn't just uh, order the release of a story like this without thinking it might be something serious. So the press release reads as follows. The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office from the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force, Roswell Army Airfield, was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the sheriff's office in Chavez County. The flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime last week. Not having phone facilities, the rancher stored the disc until such time as he was able to contact the sheriff's office, who in turn notified Major Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office. Action was immediately taken, and the disc was picked up at the rancher's home. It was inspected at the Roswell Army Airfield and subsequently loaned by Major Marcel to higher headquarters. So, after hearing what was going on with this press release, General Ramey 
ordered the material to be flown to higher command at Wright Field in Ohio, uh, which is now known as the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And he wanted it there immediately. So Jesse Marcel hopped on to a B-29 to deliver the payload. However, this flight would wind up getting diverted to the Fort Worth Army Airfield first so that General Ramey could inspect the crash debris personally. By noon, this news hit the AP wire where it was broadcasted to the entire world. So within hours, the whole planet was made aware that uh, the U.S. military had in their possession a crashed flying saucer. (laughs) Exciting stuff. Uh, And people wanted to know, did the United States military really have a flying saucer in their possession. So apparently after seeing the debris, General Ramey told Marcel that, oh, it's just a a weather balloon, but didn't want the news getting out. And according to the official accounts, there were actually attempts to stop uh, Lieutenant Hout's press release from happening altogether. But by the time they uh, tried to intercept it, he had already dropped it off at uh, all the different news reporting stations locally. So, yeah, they, they kind of missed missed the uh, the boat on that one. So General Ramey at this point calls for a press conference in Fort Worth to talk about the events unfolding at Roswell. And this conference would serve the purpose of the U.S. Army retracting their statement about being in possession of a flying saucer or, or, you know, alien craft. And instead, they had just recovered the remains of a radar reflector from a Rossinand weather balloon. And although Marcel, who was an aviation expert, uh, who didn't recognize this material and believed it to be otherworldly, apparently, was ordered to say nothing about the wreckage by General Ramey and that Ramey would handle all the talking. Uh, Marcel was essentially made to look kind of incompetent since he was the first officer reporting on his findings, and he probably thought he was originally going to be part of and explain this world-changing news, but instead, uh, General Ramey kind of set him up to, you know, look like the fool. So Marcel goes out with Ramey. And there's reporters everywhere uh, with their flashbulbs, taking pictures, yelling out questions. And, you know, this is the moment that Marcel got down and and posed with actual debris from a weather balloon uh, for this news article that would claim that, oh, this debris was actually 100% man-made. There's no flying saucer. Uh, Forget about it. (laughs) Um, And if you look at the... The picture, uh, which I'll link in the show notes, um, Marcel's holding this tinfoil looking material that's from a weather balloon. And he he's kind of, you know, smiling. But, you know, if you look at it long enough, it's kind of like he looks almost dumbfounded as he would later state in interviews that he knew that they had switched the debris and whatever is in those press photos. You know, it wasn't what he had gathered up at Foster Ranch. So I'm sure, you know, you can Google, (laughs) Google the image, but it'll be in the show notes for sure. Uh, 
1980, during an interview, Marcel spoke about this experience and said, they took pictures, of course. They had a whole flock of microphones there. They wanted some comments from me, but I was not ready to do that. So all I could do is keep my mouth shut. General Ramey is the one who discussed, told the newspapers, I mean the newsmen, what it is and to forget about it. It was nothing more than a weather observation balloon. Of course, we both knew differently. And it turns out that Ramey wasn't really the one pulling the strings. He actually had been ordered by a, uh, a General Clements McMullen, who was the Chief Deputy Strategic Air Command Officer at the Pentagon, uh, to use this story of it just being a weather balloon, which Ramey's Chief of Staff, Colonel DeBose, later described this story as an attempt to kind of put out the fire. Now, there was an additional photo that was taken, which uh, shows General Ramey and Colonel uh, Thomas DeBose with uh, a big sheet of uh, weather balloon foil. And there's something interesting that was kind of uh, figured out in recent years. It looks like in the picture that General Ramey is actually holding a memo. And you can sort of see the lettering on this memo. And once the technology was available, there was an algorithm that the the photograph uh, was put through and zoomed in onto this memo. And it has a really interesting message in it. Uh, and it's, it's from General Ramey to General Hoyt Vandenberg, who was the then acting Army Air Force Chief of Staff at the time at the Pentagon. And he's providing Vandenberg with this update on what's going on with Roswell. So the first paragraph in it apparently starts by saying that a, quote, disc is the next new find. And then the next line that was able to be deciphered says the victims of the wreck and something that's just maybe it just says a wreck um, and operation at the ranch. And at the end, it states you, meaning uh, General Vandenberg, had ordered the victims or the wreckage uh, to be forwarded to Fort Worth, Texas. And in the second paragraph, it looks like Ramey is describing what's going on and how everything is being handled with the situation. And he first states something like, in the disc, and mentions something about aviators within, um, and talking about the 8th Army Division. And yeah, it's just pretty interesting. Um, I remember when this came out and everyone was in the, the UFO field was like, Oh, this is like a kind of a smoking gun, if you will. Um, so yeah, that it's, uh, another piece of evidence for sure. Um, you know, who knows if it's, if, if the, the algorithm deciphering it was a hundred percent accurate or, or what, but, uh, definitely worth noting. And the plan for this press correction to bury the story worked. And it was just in time. 
uh, before the story, the original story was about to be run in major newspapers like the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Chicago Tribune. So the public quickly forgot and turned their attention back to their daily lives. And now all the attention is off the story of the military having a flying saucer. And at the time, there's, you know, no internet, no social media, whatever. Uh, so news didn't travel as fast as it does today. So it was kind of an easy, easy story to squash. And with the USA just getting out of World War II and playing a huge part in winning that war, people back then didn't really question if the, the military had any ulterior motives. One quote that I found uh, interesting while doing my research for this episode uh, was from Philip Corso's book, uh, and he he said in it, in Roswell in 1947, the landing of a flying saucer was no fantasy. It was real. The military wasn't able to prevent it, and this time the authorities didn't want a repeat of War of the Worlds. So you can see the mentality at work behind the desperate need to keep the story quiet. And that's certainly motive enough to uh, prevent something like mass panic and hysteria. The War of the Worlds broadcast by Orson Welles had only happened nine years earlier in 1938. And although the hysteria wasn't as widespread as uh, newspapers at the time claimed, many people thought that it was like 100% real. People were, were missing the, the disclaimer that this was just a fictional story. Uh, it's all for fun. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there was uh, people that panicked and, uh, you know, bad things happened. And there was, perhaps there was this idea that in the, the back of the, the minds of the, the military higher-ups that they didn't want news of something similar, but also potentially, you know, if this was real, <laughs> if it was real, uh, they didn't want something like that to, to cause chaos. I mean, there's still the argument today that, oh, if uh, aliens landed on the White House lawn or, or presented themselves however that the world would descend into chaos, all like world religions would like go by the wayside or something like that. And people just wouldn't know what to do with themselves. Um, so yeah, you know, it's something to consider, right? So the world forgets about Roswell. Uh, and that is until 1978 when the, the late, uh, UFO researcher, nuclear physicist, Stanton Friedman came onto the scene investigating this incident and he found a retired Jesse Marcel uh, who was elderly now at the time uh, he was he made it to uh, lieutenant colonel and then he left the uh, the army I believe in the late 50s and he maintained after 31 years that the wreckage he witnessed and handled personally during that incident, was not from a weather balloon. And I've got a couple of quotes from Jesse Marcel during his interviews with Stanton Friedman, uh, in which he had a few things to say about the wreckage, which I'm going to just read here real quick. Uh, so one of these quotes, he says, I saw a lot of wreckage, but no complete machine. It had disintegrated before it hit the ground. 
The wreckage was scattered over an area about three quarters of a mile long and several hundred feet wide. I was pretty well acquainted with most everything that was in the air at that time, both ours and foreign. I was also acquainted with virtually every type of weather balloon or radar tracking device being used by either civilians or the military. What it was, we didn't know. We just picked up the fragments. It certainly wasn't anything built by us. And uh, then there's this other quote. It felt like you had nothing in your hands. It wasn't any thicker than the foil out of a pack of cigarettes. But the thing about it that got me is that you couldn't even bend it. You couldn't even dent it. Even a sledgehammer would bounce off of it. I knew that I had never seen anything like that before. It was not anything from this earth. That I'm quite sure of. Being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about all materials used in aircraft and or air travel. This was nothing like that. It couldn't have been. And this interview is kind of like the catalyst for reopening the whole case on Roswell. And throughout like the 80s and 90s, all these TV specials and books and researchers started popping up. And yeah, so this is where where things start getting wild. (laughs) So, all right, I bet you're wondering about uh, what's going on with Mac Brazel. So on July 9th, uh, you know, he was apprehended by the military. Uh, he, he wound up getting escorted by military officers to Roswell to make a statement to reporters. And it seems after being held by the military for a few days that his original story of finding the supposed flying saucer debris had changed. Uh, so or, originally he was out with D Proctor on July 2nd or 3rd uh, and the story changes to he he found this debris when he was out on the ranch with his wife and two kids, Bessie and Vernon, around June 14th. Uh, he also changed the description of the material he found uh, and described finding smoky gray colored rubber over a much smaller area, about 200 yards, versus the three quarter Uh, of a mile long debris field that Jesse Marcel had noted. So Brazel finished with saying uh, he, he had found two crashed weather balloon devices on his ranch before, but this new one didn't seem to resemble those at all. And was quoted as, as saying, I'm sure what I found was not any weather observation balloon. Uh, so that's interesting. So some of the details changed, the timeline changed, and uh, yeah, but he's still kind of, you know, saying it wasn't a balloon, but all it also wasn't a flying saucer. So afterwards, he gets escorted to KGFL, the radio station, uh, where he meets again with Frank Joyce, who basically called him out and was saying, you know, your story is totally different than than what you told me like days ago and this is you know the day after um the the army's retraction of the story um so brazel responded with the army got to me and after that he uh he's taken back to the airbase where he's held in custody for eight more days uh and in the background you know the military's busy cleaning up the rest of the wreckage so that by the time Mac returns to Foster Ranch, there's nothing of it left. Uh, there were some stories where 
uh, there was like maybe a fragment or two that was seen down like in a sinkhole or something like that that was going to be too difficult to get to. But if they they were being monitored, so if they if they brought something back or they found something that the military would come by anyway and just kind of swipe it from them. Uh, so it it seemed after this whole ordeal, um, Brazel remained silent about it, save for a few moments where he would say uh, a few key things to close family members. It also appeared that he came into some money, either some kind of like lump sum of cash or perhaps a, a pension of sorts uh, that kept him um, well stocked with funds. <laughs> Some have uh, suggested, like Stanton Friedman, that uh, this could have been the military's way of keeping his mouth shut. Uh, others who knew him insisted that uh, he would never submit to bribery, but who knows? The right amount of money can make people do some things you'd never expect. And it's evident that something shifted because he also wound up buying a brand new truck after this whole ordeal. And he got out of the ranching business uh, shortly after and wound up opening up his own public storage locker business, like total 180. <laughs> and later on, when neighbors would ask, Mac would say that what he saw was actually from one of those Japanese balloon bombs, which had been sent across the Pacific Ocean during World War II and eventually had traveled through the air currents and eventually crashed in New Mexico. Uh, and those were actually uh, a thing uh, that the Japanese were working on developing, but I don't know if they ever actually implemented any. Maybe they tested a few. I know that during the, the Battle of L.A. incident in 1942, one of the theories was that um, the object could have been balloon bombs or a balloon bomb from Japan, uh, since there were, um, I think submarines or destroyers off, off the coast of California that had traveled by and were shelling a few, uh, towns at the time. So, you know, that is a possibility for sure. Um, so, uh, Mac's son, Bill would later say that he, he told a different story to his family in private that wasn't the, the Japanese balloon bomb, and that whatever it was, it was not a balloon, and they would all be better off not knowing the truth. And of the details that he did disclose to Bill, however, was that he saw some of the writings on the materials, which he described as looking kind of like... Uh, a Japanese or, or Chinese writing, which is interesting uh, because that does lend credence to the Japanese balloon bomb theory. Uh, but he also could have been mistaking them for, you know, some kind of uh, pictographic or hieroglyphic type uh, symbols, which is what Jesse Marcel and his, his son saw on the I beams. So ultimately uh, it seems that Mac Brazel was sworn to secrecy and took whatever he knew uh, to the grave. Now, let's talk about the second crash site and a third crash site because this makes things a lot more interesting. So, according to Stanton Friedman, he believed that the first site 
at Foster Ranch was the initial point of impact for whatever this craft was. And it kind of bounced off the ground and left this cluster of debris and junk spread over a big, a big swath of land. And then it kept traveling some 40 miles and would eventually crash there. And that would be the second crash site, which had the main body of the UFO. And then there would be a third site, some one to two miles further from that, that seemed to have some kind of escape pods, which is new information for me. I feel like any kind of uh, TV special I've ever watched or anything I've ever read kind of skips this detail. So I thought this was really cool. Um, or maybe I just wasn't paying attention, but the testimony by the witness, uh, Gerald Anderson, uh, was that there was this supposed third crash site, you know, located some 40 miles from Foster Ranch near, uh, San Augustine. And it was revealed in this interview with Stanton Friedman in 1991, uh, and at the time, Gerald was just five years old in 1947, but he claims that he remembered accompanying his father and his uncle on this rock collecting expedition at the same time everything else was going down at Foster Ranch. Everything was going as it should until the Andersons unexpectedly stumbled upon this horrific scene. Gerald recalled seeing these three badly injured bodies that were strewn across the landscape. He said that they looked like they were about four to four and a half feet tall. And he told Stanton Friedman that these bodies were humanoid, but they weren't human. And eventually one of these beings noticed them and attempted to communicate. Although the other two definitely seemed like they were dead. Interestingly, there is a secondhand account corroborating the story of a third crash site that comes from a man named Vern Maltese. Now, Vern had a friend in the U.S. Soil Conservation Service named Barney Barnett. That same day, Barnett, too, told Vern that he came across this scene of these three weird alien bodies, and he hung out for a bit when another group of civilian archaeologists showed up. I'm wondering if this was Gerald Anderson. <laughs> Not... <laughs> Might have been, or it might have been a different group. Uh, they they analyzed the scene for a while and decided to call the Roswell Fire Department and the Sheriff's Department, which are like 100 miles away uh, from the point where they're at. Uh, but instead of the people that they called showing up, a complement of military police arrived and escorted them all away from the site so that... Uh, you know, recovery crews could come in, lock down the area, comb the desert for any debris and these bodies, of course. Uh, so you can assume if the military found out about this second crash site, they're going to recover all the wreckage along with any remains of its occupants. Uh, well, according to certain eyewitnesses, that's just what the military did. <laughs> uh and the wreckage and bodies were apparently collected and hauled to the Roswell Army Airfield, where they were kept in the infamous hangar P-3, uh, or what is known or referred to uh, today as Hangar 84 or Building 84, uh, for some time until they were then 
according to the story, shipped off to Wright Field in Ohio. Now, there's a few key witnesses to apparently seeing some otherworldly stuff at Hangar 84 or having suspicious interactions with the military uh, surrounding the whole situation. So let's get into that for a little bit. The first person or witness I want to talk about here is someone named Glenn Dennis, who was a mortician who worked out of the Ballard Funeral Home in Roswell during 1947. Now, Glenn Dennis had a contract with the Roswell Army Airfield to provide mortuary services and was occasionally called out to recover mangled bodies from airplane crashes, and he would, like, prepare remains to be shipped back to their families. So this guy had definitely seen it all. Uh, So around July 9th or 10th, he receives several interesting calls from the Roswell Army Airfield mortuary officer And he has apparently heard nothing about the buzz about wreckage found at Foster Ranch and potential flying saucers and all that. So at that point, the military had shut the story down. But so he must have missed the uh, the newspaper from the Daily Record on, on July 8th. And the story probably died down locally pretty quick, too. I'm sure there were still some rumors going around, but yeah, it seems that it was largely quelled. So the mortuary officer at the base, as it turns out, wanted to know about hermetically sealed caskets and what was the smallest size that they could get. This officer also inquired about what kind of chemical solutions his office used in vats and how it affects corpses, along with the chemical composition of blood and the breakdown of tissue, and what happens to the tissue when it's been out in the sun for several days. So Glenn Dennis realized after a few calls that day that the army was essentially trying to figure out how to transport a body or multiple bodies without them falling apart. Uh, But I should note that Glenn Dennis said that the the mortuary officer he was speaking with was really vague if he was actually talking about a single body or multiple bodies, if they were actually in possession of uh, someone or something that was deceased, or if there were any bodies at all. So I'm thinking he was asking like, So, theoretically, how do you preserve and move a dead body that's been baking in the sun for a week? (laughs) And then Glenn Dennis asks what the bodies looked like. And that's when the officer kind of let it slip and said he didn't know, but they died and were exposed to the elements for several days, and that were three of them located about two miles from a crash site. And two were mangled bad, and one was in decent shape. So... We got some details. (laughs) Later that day, uh, really more the early evening at that point, Glenn Dennis wound up having to take an injured GI accident victim to the base infirmary. And he claims that as he was going into the area, there was a bunch of metallic looking wreckage being held nearby. And since he has this contract with the base, he can kind of just like show up when he's needed. Um, and has like the clearance to do so. Um, so he said that this material didn't look like aluminum foil, uh, and instead it had this strange blue purple hue to it. Like if you put uh, a source of heat against stainless steel for a while, and 
he also noticed that some of the pieces had rows of these unrecognizable symbols on them. Again, with these symbols. <laughs> he also noted that he saw several high-ranking military brass that he didn't recognize at all. And he was pretty familiar with a lot of people at the base. And it seemed to him like they were really shook up about something that was going on. Now, eventually, Glenn Dennis got accosted by some MPs asking who the hell he was, where the hell he was from, why the hell he was there. And after explaining his role as the uh, a mortician and that he was bringing in uh, an injured GI, they kind of backed off. So he then ran into the on-duty nurse that he had gotten to know at the base at the time, uh, this woman named Naomi Maria Self. And he kind of had a thing for her, it seemed. Um, and she comes out looking like distressed as hell. And she's asking him how he got into the building and that he was going to get killed if they found him. And apparently Glenn Dennis, as he was like walking through before he ran into her, he was just going to like the the vending machine nearby to go get a couple of like Cokes. Uh, and after after that, when he ran into the nurse, uh, this army colonel that he didn't know saw him and flagged down two MPs who then literally carried him outside and told him to get lost. So after he got in his vehicle and left, he, he wound up getting followed all the way back to the funeral home where he worked. And later on, he claimed that he received threatening phone calls from the base to not say anything about what he saw that night. So the next day, Naomi called Glenn Dennis and was audibly upset over the phone and said that she needed to speak to him in person. So they meet up and she reveals what's going on. There was a crash of some otherworldly craft and that they had bodies of the occupants. And she described what they looked like. These beings were small, uh, fragile looking with no hair. Their noses didn't protrude and they had different large deep set eyes with only little indents for ears on the sides of their large heads. Uh, kind of the, you know, the typical uh, modern day <laughs> description of an alien, right? Uh, and they had arms and legs just like us, so they're humanoid, but the arms and hands of them were different. Their arms were kind of set up in reverse to humans, so the bicep area was actually longer than the forearm. Um, so short forearm, long bicep. On a human, it would be a longer uh, forearm and short bicep. Did I? <laughs> I think I got that right. Uh, and then their hands had no thumbs, so, so they only had four digits or finger-like or tentacle-like appendages, as it was described. And the word tentacle kind of applied a little bit because apparently the tips of the fingers appeared to have some kind of suction cups on them, and they couldn't tell if these beings had reproductive organs either, uh, perhaps due to two of the bodies being badly damaged and burned, or maybe there was something else to it. She wasn't clear exactly, uh, but she described that the smell of the bodies as being absolutely like horrid and putrid, and you couldn't get within 100 feet of them without getting uh, sick to your stomach. Apparently, uh, when Glenn Dennis had arrived the day before, 
Naomi had just run out of the exam room where the doctors were uh, checking out the alien bodies and she needed to get fresh air because she couldn't stand the smell and was getting sick. And she also said they wound up having to turn off the air conditioning in the exam room uh, so that the stench wouldn't, you know, go through the the HVAC system of the hospital in, at the, uh, the air base. And yeah, nasty stuff. So uh, the doctors apparently gave up because the conditions were too hot and brutal and they completed preparing the bodies in the uh, Hangar 84. So at this point, as she's describing all of this, this uh, hor- horrible scene <laughs> to Glenn Dennis, Naomi's like on the verge of an, a nervous breakdown. So Dennis drives her to her barracks. And after that, he never sees her again. Any attempts that Dennis made to try to contact her were apparently obstructed. Uh, she was either away at a seminar and then eventually he was informed that she got transferred to England. And he eventually received this letter from her saying that she would explain everything. And it was really cryptic. So he wrote back to her, but then he got his letter uh, returned returned back to him, returned to sender with a stamp on it that said deceased. Like, what? (laughs) So uh, apparently, you know, if if this story is real and this this nurse was real, right, Uh, she basically got disappeared. Uh, as being like a primary witness to to some some wild stuff. According to Stanton Friedman, at least in the early 90s, efforts to find out the identity of this woman, this nurse, had been largely unsuccessful, uh, with no records being found with the military records office or anyone with her name ever having served as an army nurse. And he seemed to indicate that if she actually existed, it looked like any mention of her was potentially scrubbed from the records. Now, I want to go over a few other witnesses, but not all of them because there are tons uh, who claim to have seen alien bodies at the hangar. I know we're <laughs> this this episode's getting a little bit long, so <laughs> keep keep with me for just a few more. Uh, so. The next witness uh, I want to talk about is Elazar Benavidez. So Elazar Benavidez was a private first class who was part of the security unit at Roswell. And he claimed that during like July 8th, July 9th, there was this terrible smell coming from the base hospital, which kind of seems to bolster the claim from the nurse that Glenn Dennis had interacted with. In Hangar 84, he also claimed to see that there were alien bodies in there, and one of them was still alive, moving slowly from side to side, and it was under a sheet on a stretcher some 20 feet away. So initially, he didn't know that they were alien, but several personnel came in and took the stretcher that the living one was on, and while they were carrying it, they slipped. So... Just, you know, picture the scene, they slip, the sheet falls away, uh, and it reveals that the person or thing that's this being that's on this stretcher is this gray-skinned, hairless, uh, big-headed, non-human entity. Uh, and Elazar noted seeing a lot of uh, crash wreckage in there as well that didn't look like it was from a plane. 
The next witness was Captain Oliver Wendell Henderson, uh, who people just called Pappy for some reason. So he was one of the most highly regarded pilots at the Roswell Army Airfield, having served on 30 missions in Europe during the war. He also participated in atomic bomb tests in the Pacific after the war and had earned major commendations for his flight skills. Now, Pappy apparently witnessed some wild stuff around July 8th at the base. And in fact, he's, he's apparently the guy who piloted the plane carrying the crashed wreckage of the supposed flying saucer to Wright Field in Ohio. And the, the B-29 that he flew, and I read somewhere, although I can't 100% confirm it, uh, that the, the B-29 that Pappy was flying might have been the Enola Gay, the same plane that dropped the first atomic bomb in Japan. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting and weird, uh, weird thing for sure. Um, so don't quote me on that because I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't 100% verify it. Uh, so Pappy kept silent about all of this for 30 years, and he opened up about it to his business partner, a fellow retired army officer turned dentist named John Cromschroeder. And Pappy passed away after a battle with cancer in 1986, and Cromschroeder came public about Pappy's story four years later in 1990, and he explained that Pappy had helped transport flying saucer wreckage and alien bodies calling it, quote-unquote, spacecraft garbage. <laughs> and he described the alien bodies as being small. And Pappy also managed to snag a small piece of the wreckage and held onto it all that time. He eventually let Kromschroeder see this metallic object, and being a bit of a metallurgist, he decided that it was made of some alloy that he was unfamiliar with. And Pappy also confided his story with his wife, Sappho Henderson, who has corroborated many of the details that were restated by Kromschroeder. And he also shared the stories with his daughter as well. Uh, and it wasn't until around like the early 80s that Pappy actually told his wife what happened all those decades ago. And it was basically him coming clean after they were at the grocery store one day and they see this headline on a newspaper talking about the UFO crash in Roswell back in 1947. Because at this time, you know, Stanton Friedman had interviewed Jesse Marcel and there's all these researchers looking into the case and they read the article and he's like, hey, that was me flying the plane of the, uh, the UFO wreckage to Wright field in Ohio. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of interesting. Um, all right. So I'm going to mention one more witness here before getting into the theories. So this next one is from the Lieutenant governor of New Mexico at the time and later us Senator Joseph Montoya. According to the story on July 7th, Montoya was paying a visit to the Roswell army airfield and this was, of course, the same day that the alien bodies were recovered and the wreckage from the crash was being brought in and stored at Hangar 84. 
there is no official explanation from what I could find as to the reason why Montoya was present at the base uh, during this whole fiasco, but some think it's a reasonable assumption that the initial press release from Lieutenant Hout of a captured flying saucer and its almost immediate retraction from General Ramey drew the attention of Montoya, who may have wanted to see what was going on personally. Uh, however, people he's connected with that told his story have uh, a different reason why he was there. Uh, so Montoya uh, never officially stated anything regarding the Roswell incident uh, by himself, but there is this secondhand testimony that came out in 1991 from his then drivers, uh, Pete, Anaya, and his brother, Ruben. And they were staunch supporters of Montoya at the time. So they claimed that Montoya was at the base that day uh, originally to uh, do a dedication to some new airplane. And uh, Ruben Anaya, Pete's brother, was at his home and he apparently didn't have a phone. I, I guess not a lot of people had a phone, phones in their house back then. I don't know. Uh, so his... His father winds up stopping by his place and he's like knocking on his door, comes in and he tells Ruben that the lieutenant governor needed to speak with him urgently. So Ruben drives to his father's house and his father has a phone. Uh, he gets a hold of Montoya to see what's going on. And it's not clear in the details if if uh, Ruben and I's father knew that Montoya was at the airbase because how would he know where to call? <laughs> uh, so Ruben claimed that he heard a sense of panic on Montoya's voice saying, I'm at the big hangar. Get your car and pick me up. Get me the hell out of here. Hurry. <laughs> and Ruben then rushed to his brother Pete's house. And Pete was talking to uh, two, other, uh, two other supporters of Montoya. And they all piled in Ruben's car and headed to the airfield to pick up the lieutenant governor. And Montoya had told Ruben to, strangely, take an alternative route to the base so that they would avoid the main headquarters, which is kind of sus. Uh, so when the Anayas and the other uh, associates of, of Montoya arrived, they could see that there was tons of uh, military and uh, city police guarding the entrance to the base. And there's all sorts of activity going on near the big hangar, hangar P3 or hangar 84. And they wind up making it close enough to the hangar and they see the door to it or one of the doors to it swing open and Montoya comes running out and he jumps in the car and he's like, let's get the hell out of here. Let's go. <laughs> uh, so it's like, what was going on that has Montoya that visibly shook? He explained to Anaya, or I guess the, the brothers Anaya and the other associates in the car, that there was all this wreckage in the hangar and that he saw four, uh, not three, but four little uh, strange men. Three of them were dead, but one was alive. And he said that they were short, and would have only come up to his chest if they were standing. He described them as being very skinny, and they had huge teardrop-shaped eyes, small sliver in their face for a mouth, and overall had 
abnormally large heads. And they were all laid out on a table in the hangar. And the one that was alive, Montoya said he could hear a moaning and it had its knees bent up. Like it was on its back, its knees were bent up and it was rocking them back and forth, which kind of corroborates Benavidez's story of witnessing one of these entities and saying he saw them moving side to side. Now, Montoya nor his family, again, never spoke of this. Um, and apparently he told the Anayas and the other associates in the car that it would be far too dangerous to talk about this. And if they did, he cautioned that the government might come after them. So what really happened at Roswell? Let's get into the theories. I, like, there's so many more witnesses and angles to look at the story, but we're <laughs> this is already a super a super long episode. So, I want to go over a couple theories before we go. Uh, so, from 1947 up until 1994, the official military explanation for the Roswell incident was that it was just a weather balloon that had a radar reflector on it, and it had crashed around Foster Ranch. And because of this downplaying of the event, it was largely forgotten until Stanton Friedman dug up the case and started interviewing Jesse Marcel, and then it snowballed into other researchers interviewing tons more witnesses and building this whole picture of what may have actually happened back then. So in 1994, the Air Force came out with a new official report explaining what happened. The report concluded that the debris recovered near Roswell was likely from Project Mogul, which was a secret military program run between 1947 and 1951. And this project was a surveillance program using high-altitude balloons with sophisticated microphones and radar targets, kind of in this like big chain, uh, to discover and detect Soviet nuclear testing. A subsequent report in 1997 addressed the issue of alien bodies being found, and the explanation there was that it was likely a combination of misremembering the timing of events in history uh, and another military program called Operation High Dive, which tested high-altitude parachutes using anthropomorphic dummies that happened in the 1950s. So basically, it was still explained as a kind of balloon, uh, but a top-secret balloon uh, with an array of microphones and radar <laughs> um, targets attached to it, and that the several people who claimed to witness and discover alien bodies and several more military or government workers who saw them at the Roswell Army Airfield in 1947 actually saw them in the 1950s and were just uh, creating false memories or misremembering uh, what had happened and when, and uh, were probably just trying to find their 15 minutes of fame and, you know, lying about it. Uh, but the amount of witness testimony that lines up from people who didn't even know each other uh, over, you know, several years makes makes me think that there there could have, you know, definitely could have been something else at play here. So that's something to uh, consider for sure. So that's the official explanation from the government, but there are theories besides aliens. Uh, and this is kind of a weird one. 
this comes from the author Annie Jacobson in her book, Area 51, An Uncensored History of America's Top Secret Military Base. And in it, there is uh, a section about Roswell, and she proposes that there were no aliens at Roswell. Instead, uh, she suggests that after World War II, Joseph Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union at the time, uh, recruited the monstrous Nazi SS officer Joseph Mengele, who uh, he wanted to work on this project for him against the United States. And of course, you know, the United States also had Operation Paperclip, where they brought in uh, Nazi scientists to work uh, and develop rocket programs like uh, Werner von Braun, right? <clears throat> so that's a whole other story. And for those who don't know, uh, Mengele was a doctor and became known as the Angel of Death, who performed these horrific and abominable experiments on concentration camp prisoners. Uh, so the idea that uh, was that Stalin recruited Mengele to produce grotesque uh, child-sized aviators that would be remotely flown to the U.S., uh, where they would land and cause hysteria and mass panic, like Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast, like I mentioned before. And she claims that the bodies recovered from the crash site were actually short and deformed children who were around 12 years old. I mean, I don't buy this one at all. Uh, and apparently the book was highly criticized for uh, poor research, tons of errors, and just like, I guess it wasn't good. <laughs> um but uh, now, of course, I got to dedicate a minute here to uh, talking about the skeptic's point of view of all the witnesses and events around Roswell. And, you know, they're all on board with the weather balloon or Project Mogul explanation, which is to be expected. According to them, out of the 300 or so witnesses, apparently only 41 can be considered genuine first or secondhand witnesses. And out of that, uh, 23 likely saw physical evidence and uh, debris from something, uh, but only seven had ever suggested that the wreckage was alien or otherworldly. Now, most other witnesses, according to them, apparently just repeated the same claims as others or just made stuff up. And as far as one of the big, biggest witnesses, of course, uh, Jesse Marcel, uh, skeptics have claimed that Marcel had a history of exaggerating stories and that his claims about Roswell kind of evolved over time, such as agreeing with the wreckage being from a balloon at first, but then changing his story to say that the material we see in the uh, the famous press photos was not actually what was found at Foster Ranch. And they based this on him claiming that he had been a pilot and received all these medals for downing enemy planes, but apparently that was all false. <laughs> um, so, you know, of course there's always going to be skeptics with this kind of stuff. Um, and I like to kind of look at, look at every angle and, and see if we can come to any, any, uh, conclusions or new theories, but obviously one of the biggest and most popular theories is that the earth was visited by extraterrestrials from another planet in outer space. And, 
there's certainly enough eyewitness testimony about debris that was found and potential recovered non-human entities uh, that are enough to raise an eyebrow and question the official narrative. Uh, while researching for this episode, <laughs> I watched this short series on uh, Discovery Channel uh, called Roswell, The Final Verdict, where the show used this artificial intelligence that was developed by Dartmouth University in New Hampshire, uh, just a, you know, a hop skipping away from <laughs> my neck of the woods, uh, which could predict uh, based on uh, micro expressions in the human face that, you know, you can't detect as a human because they're so tiny uh, that if a, if a person is telling the truth or if they're lying and they ran it on a bunch of the video testimonies of the witnesses to the events of Roswell that happened uh, between, you know, the, the seventies through the nineties and the results are pretty interesting. So before we go, I just want to go over a few of these, check this out. So private Elazar Benavides, he's the guy that claimed to see the live alien on a stretcher as well as a couple of dead ones. And some think that he just made this story up, but according to the AI, uh, the analysis of his video interview recording uh, predicted that he was actually telling the truth. And it's funny on this show, there's, <laughs> you know, you got uh, all, all the usuals are, are, are on this, this show and like they're surprised that like, oh, that's actually true. Wow. <laughs> it's like, come on, guys. All right. So the uh, the next one I have is from Joseph Montoya. Uh, New Mexico's lieutenant governor at the time. And his story, of course, was that he went to the hangar at the base and he saw strange debris methodically laid out. And then he also saw stretchers with aliens on them. And one was still alive, shocked him, and he ran from the hangar uh, to meet up with the Anayas who drove him away. And interestingly, this one, the the AI uh, did an analysis on Pete Anaya, who had a, a video interview done, and the AI predicted that Pete Anaya's account was actually false. So there was this idea that, you know, Pete Anaya may have been threatened by uh, the military or the government or something, or maybe the fact that he was a secondhand witness confused the, the artificial intelligence, or, you know, maybe he was just making the whole thing up. It's, uh, <laughs> I think it could go either way. Now, um, Pappy or uh, Captain Oliver uh, Wendell Henderson, he, again, was this really well-respected, experienced pilot, a decorated airman from World War II, had top security clearance, and he gets orders in July 1947 to fly a plane on a top-secret mission to the Roswell Army Airfield, and... Uh, to bring some strange wreckage and bodies to right field in Ohio. And he confides with his family that he, uh, he saw these little people with big heads that were three to four feet tall, pale skin, had big eyes that were humanoid, but not human. Um, and his wife and his daughter, um, his wife, Sappho Henderson and his daughter, Catherine, both get analyzed by this AI and obviously their accounts are secondhand from Pappy 
Uh, but the AI predicted that both of their testimonies were true. So that's kind of cool. And then Jesse Marcel, of course, uh, we, we <laughs> I don't need to repeat anything about him because he was you know, one of the, the first big major players. The AI did an analysis on one of his video interviews from the late 70s. The AI actually predicted that his was true, which is interesting considering the fact that skeptics are all over his case, like he was evolving his story and making things up and adding in new details that, yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of interesting to see both sides of it. Now, Gerald Anderson, who was the then five-year-old who was out with his father and uncle outside of Corona, some 40 miles away at the second or third crash site, and this was the alleged discovery of the alien bodies, and his testimony was analyzed, and the AI predicted that his account was truthful on the account of seeing wreckage, but false on the claim of seeing alien bodies. So do with that info what you will. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, there's also Barney Barnett, who was from the U.S. Soil Conservation, and he also claimed to find and discover the alien bodies. His, <laughs> so interestingly, you know, he sees this same scene that Gerald Anderson claims to see, but but Barney Barnett's testimony was predicted to be true, which is interesting. And now Barney Barnett's testimony actually came secondhand from Vern Maltese. So, you know, that's interesting. Another secondhand account that is predicted to be true. <laughs> um, now, this one I didn't actually go over earlier, but there, there was another military personnel that was at the base. Uh, this was Sergeant Frederick Benthal. And in the 1990s, he came forward and claimed to have actually photographed the alien bodies. And his account said that there were four, not three. And he said he took around 30 photos, described these beings as having four fingers, big heads, and smelled terrible. All the details were familiar with, with several other uh, testimonies. And he was unable to provide any photos or negatives, but the affidavit of his written testimony was corroborated with several other witnesses, and there were no video interviews with him. So they tried running the AI on that, but it wasn't able to confirm or deny <laughs> the truthfulness. But I just wanted to throw that one in real quick that I forgot about earlier. Now, Lieutenant Walter Hout, um, of course, he was the one that submitted the press release about the Roswell crash with orders coming down from Colonel William Blanchard. And his claim uh, was determined to be true in regards to certain government agents trying to stop the story from getting out. And something, and I probably should do like another episode on this in the future, but there were kind of like men in black types that apparently showed up. So there's so many, so many things I could branch off with this episode. All right. And the final one here is Glenn Dennis, the local mortician in Roswell that got a call about hermetically sealed caskets. And then he shows up at the base, sees the distressed nurse 
and gets harassed by the military. And his account, his testimony, according to the AI, was predicted to be true. So it's pretty interesting that many of these witness claims are predicted to be true, but also that some were false or like partially true. <laughs> so I'd be interested to hear what, you know, skeptics think of the the Jesse Marcel claim or any of the other witness testimonies. Either way, I think that these results answer a lot of questions people have had over the decades, but also might raise new ones. And here is where I am ending the episode on the Roswell incident. Thank you all for sticking with me until the end. You you deserve a reward for that. We're an hour and a half in. Uh, I was originally going to split this into two parts, but I decided to just tank it. So give yourselves a pat on the back. Roswell is such a complex and nuanced story. And I'll probably revisit it again in the future, maybe go over some other witness testimony at some point. Uh, but I did an insane amount of research uh, looking into this story, and it's one that I've been familiar with for my whole life, but learning about a lot of the new details, getting lost in the minutiae added a few extra days of trying to get this whole thing done, you know, not to mention like the three-week cycle of catching a cold because <laughs> I have a kid in daycare, so that's the way it goes. Uh, but anyway, thank you again so much for listening to the show today. It means a lot to me and uh, helps me out so much. And without your your support and uh, you're checking out my show, sharing it with family and friends, you know, it would be hard pressed for me to to find find the time and the dedication to to put these shows out for y'all. All right, time for the Patreon plug. Uh, if you're looking for a way to support the Strangeology podcast, please head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology. I have a multiple tiered reward system in place over there where you get more benefits uh, the higher up you go in the tiers. Some of the benefits include shout outs, discounts to my merch store, exclusive merch, a t-shirt of the month club, access to my VIP discord rooms, early access to new episodes and uh, access to the bonus extension episodes I do called Strangeology Beyond. And sometimes they're literally a whole other episode beyond this one. Uh, and even some behind the scenes stuff, uh, among other uh, perks and benefits. Uh, always looking to uh, expand what I do there and offer more value to my subscribers. And a big shout out to all of my Patreon family that keeps growing bigger. Without your support, Strangeology would not be where it's at today. Uh, I love you all, <laughs> and uh, your support means the world to me. So again, if you want to check that out, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Strangeology. And if you're looking for another way to support Strangeology, you can head on over to my merch shop, which is strangeology.etsy.com. I've got tons of cryptid and alien and otherwise Fortean themed merch there. There's t-shirts, tank tops, sweatshirts, stickers, enamel pins, mugs. Uh, I'm always adding new stuff uh, and I'm working on listing my home state cryptids and legends maps. So that should be up there soon. I just need to add one more cryptid to it and then it's done. 
the uh, home state cryptids project, which I've been, I started like literally two years ago uh, in July uh, <laughs> is like finally done. I have all the states filled out um, minus that one. I just got to pick which state I'm going to do. Uh, some have multiple, some states have multiple cryptids. So it's, it's, it was a wild ride for sure, but, uh, <laughs> we'll see what the next project is going to be. Maybe another country or something. Um, yeah. And also be sure, uh, give me a follow over on social media. If you haven't yet, if you're looking for more content from me and just day-to-day stuff, memes, uh, giveaway notifications, uh, you can find me on Instagram at strange.ology strangeologist on Twitter and just strangeology on Facebook and TikTok. I'm probably going to be running a giveaway pretty soon. Uh, my Instagram is just about to hit 6,000 followers and I recently released a Chicago Mothman t-shirt design and then didn't get around to doing a giveaway. So I'm probably going to do a giveaway, uh, involving that and maybe have like, you know, a few, uh, a few uh, uh, winners or something like that instead of just one. So stay tuned. Definitely don't uh, don't miss out on that because uh, people love getting free stuff. And also be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel as well, where I have there's some YouTube exclusive content there, and I've got plans to do a lot more with the channel soon. I've got some cool camera gear and lighting. <laughs> green screen stuff that I've invested in to, to help out with producing more videos. So that's going to be really cool. So stay tuned for all that stuff. All right. That about does it for now. Uh, for Patreon members, definitely stick around after the short break. And when I return, I'm going to go into the mystery surrounding the disappearance of the Australian pilot, Frederick Valentich and his alleged abduction by a UFO. So until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. And as always, keep it strange. Welcome back to another installment of Strangeology Beyond. I hope you all enjoyed.